0: What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. I am your host, Jeremy Jackson. I've got Sean Reedy and one of his doctors, Dr. Paul Sines, who's a team physician for the San Antonio Spurs. So the Sports Medicine Broadcast is a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer, and that's just what we're going to try and do today as Dr. Sines talks about when sports science and sports medicine converge. This uh, podcast will be eligible for CEUs. Once the audio version is released, you can go to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash sports science. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash sports science. And that'll have the links. How do you get to the CEUs? Or you can go to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com CU and you can take the courses that are available now. So thank you, Sean Reedy, for hooking us up with the CU certificates, the CU eligibility. Sean,
1: so Dr. Science is one of our um, is one of the primary care sports medicine um, physicians here in San Antonio with SMASA um, Sports Medicine Associates San Antonio. Um, he was one of the first primary care sports medicine physicians in the city, I believe, and he's worked with obviously the Spurs, but many. Uh, Olympic games, Olympic teams, um, many of the colleges here, through, here throughout the San Antonio area. And we 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 are lucky enough at Methodist that we get to work with him quite often when we, we're doing some physicals and things of that sort.
2: Well, thank you for having me here with you guys today and uh, the whole audience out there. And I, I want you to take just a second to glance at the title slide there because it has somewhat of a little uh, Darwinian uh, approach here to uh, to the theme of the talk today, and really, it's a little bit of a personal speak as to how my own role as a team physician has seemed to evolve over the years. And you know, we're all involved in the game of sports medicine, and and that allows us to interface with athletes and teams, and the whole nature of this is the competitive nature of sports, and so. The, the talk essentially is, a, the substance of the talk will be looking at the way that workloads that are imposed upon athletes ultimately may affect their performance. Uh, consideration also to the risk of injury. And we all know that along with, with injuries comes success, individual success or team success is highly dependent upon injuries. So I think this is something very germane to all of us. And I'll advance now. And we know that historically the team physician has been involved in the day to day care of athletes, and that the particular focus has really been on managing and recognizing athletic illnesses and injuries and then uh, prescribing a treatment for that. Yet, it, the, the evolution of all of that, and, and I include not just team physicians, but all those that are involved in the care of athletes, and, and certainly the athletic trainers are the eyes and ears of the team phys, team physician. So the essential requirements of today's team physician and athletic trainers includes not only an understanding of sports medicine as we've traditionally been trained, but now an understanding of sports science, derived metrics, and analysis of those metrics, That are being utilized to monitor athletic performance and injury prevention and essentially doing that by looking at workloads imposed upon our athletes. So there's a whole cadre of tools and a suite of tools that are now available for those of us monitoring athletic performance Um, and it's now really part of our responsibility to extract that information that's derived from whether it be high-speed motion cameras like the cameras that are in place at every NBA arena. We know that GPS technology has found its way into managing uh, and assessing data and data collection of athletic workloads. There's things in place like force plates that can be used to measure strength, that can be used to measure baselines, recovery from injury. Physiologically, we may look at saliva, and we know that By extracting certain biomarkers from saliva, we can get somewhat of a status on the athlete's level of fitness, fatigue, recovery, et cetera. And then on the psychological end of the effect that workloads have on athletes, there are wellness scales that we can give to our athletes on a routine basis to see how they're feeling in response to the workloads. San Antonio Spurs really, and my association with them over the last 21 years, has been a, a a period of professional growth for me. And I can tell you that the Spurs have always really been on a leading edge and cutting edge in the area of exploration of the various aspects that would enhance athletic performance. So the Spurs' way of doing things is to really look at best practices around the globe. And I can tell you that the, the, the logos that you see here, whether it's FC Barcelona Soccer Club, the New York Giants uh, Football Club, the New Zealand All Blacks um, rugby team, uh, Melbourne, Australian Rules Football, Manchester United, all of these organizations have had open discussions and very frank discussions and shared intellectual knowledge and intellectual properties with the Spurs, and so um, I can tell you just that there's been a, a significant evolution in the uh, in the in the application of sports science to our NBA club. So now, where it simply once upon a time was team doctors and athletic trainers, the the staff has just markedly expanded to where a team physician is usually you have both. An orthopedic team physician and, a, and really a primary care sports medicine physician, and if if we will follow the ways of uh, of Europe and how things are done in Australia and and places that have really led the charge in sports science, the the primary care sports medicine tends to be designated as the head team physician, and orthopedic surgeons are being utilized as consultants and. You know, it's kind of been the reverse of the way things uh, st- started in the states, but the the role has certainly expanded for primary care sports medicine doctor. And all thirty NBA teams have doctors that completed fellowships in primary care sports medicine. In addition to the orthopedist on the uh, on the sports medicine team, we now have directors of medical services, and in our organization, that's a physical therapist with a PhD. Um, interesting. A lot of these individuals are from different parts of the world. Our our, uh, director of medical services is uh, South African. Our applied sports scientist is another PhD and possibly the smartest person I've ever run into in the sports medicine world. Um, And he is um, from Spain. (laughs) So, you know, there is an international flair that seems to be taking place with regards to the formation of professional sports medicine teams. Our director of rehabilitation is a a physiotherapist um, from Canada. Of course, we have a cadre of athletic trainers, and they still serve as the backbone and primary interface directly with our athletes and the primary intermediary between our athletes and our coaches. And we have several athletic trainers, a head athletic trainer and several assistant athletic trainers. Strength and conditioning coaches, um, a head strength and conditioning coach and, and several others um, we just about fill a whole bus by ourselves with just our sports medicine team, uh, sports psychologists, sports nutritionists who are right, uh, registered licensed dietitians. And then just the cadre of whether you're going to bring on other specialists. We've had people that tell us how we ought to sleep. Um, there's really no limits to the resources that are explored that may, in essence, bring about a better performance of individuals and team why is it we want to monitor athletes you know what what's the payback from this well you're able to give players direct feedback and i think you know athletes realize i think for the most part especially when they've reached a relatively high level collegiate and beyond that they're you get you get what you put into it and so that their capabilities uh, and their efforts should ultimately result in improved performance But I often say the athletes walk the fine line between the workload that they absorb and their performance. So there are some parameters that we try to keep track on there. Injury prevention, of course, is one of the main reasons why we want to accumulate this data and see if there are concrete relationships that we can draw by looking at workloads and then assessing a risk of injury. It's all about it's all about achieving optimal performance. And, and I think that's that's easy for us to all understand that as, as injuries go, so go the, the success of the team. And so for those in individual sports, uh, cross-country cross runner or track and field athlete, it's more individualized. Whereas our team sports, uh, such as soccer and, and American football, basketball, et cetera, uh, all of these are things that we look at globally as individual performance then translates to team performance. If you have these baselines, uh, much in the way we have baselines for concussion testing, it allows us then when our athletes um, are recovering from injury, to look back at that baseline and make some determinations about the reliability and our confidence level in being able to say that an athlete is capable of returning to play. And then lastly, and this is very important, is we can give our coaches feedback on the, the state of fitness, the state of perhaps fatigue of a individual athlete or a group of athletes collectively so that coaches now can alter their individual player loads and uh, make some adjustments in their practice schedules, et cetera. So we all know that, that when we look at athletic performance, that it involves several different facets and, and strength and aerobic capacity, uh, the, the level of nutrition that the athlete is willing to commit to recovery methods is just a huge area. And it, it is really very, very well documented that after uh, a significant workload that athletes need sufficient recovery time. And we've changed our vernacular within the Spurs organization uh, from the word rest to recovery. And so instead of a coach saying at the end of the game, okay, we've had four games in five nights and tomorrow's an off day, we will now use the, the terminology, that tomorrow's a recovery day. And so it encourages athletes to not only get their necessary sleep, but also to look for the various recovery means, and we'll, we'll touch base on some of these. Sleep, of course, is an excellent form of recovery and, and is something that every athlete should strive to obtain and that's adequate amounts of sleep. Psychological wellness, and we can look at psychological profiles and, and you simply just pose questionnaires to athletes and, and they do get a little tired of filling them out on a daily basis and they're liable to say, feel fantastic, or they may be liable to say they feel lousy, but you, you do have to take that into the perspective of your understanding of that individual athlete, uh, because they, they may be giving you clues that physiologically they're wearing down um, by some of the answers or responses to the questionnaire. What is it we really want to work uh, monitor? We, we really want to look at the volume and intensity of work that we're imposing on our athletes during their training periods, and then their competitive periods, their their games. We wanna look at their performance markers and the strength and conditioning coaches will of course have baselines on athletes' uh, strengths as they come into camp. And then what's the response over time? So we wanna look at aerobic capabilities and then we wanna look at strength markers We want to look at an athlete's ability to recover from injury. I'm sorry, not from injury, but from workloads and uh, get a relative assessment of their level of fatigue or wellness. And ultimately, this then affects player availability. So again, that feedback with the coaches so that they know how to do individual tailoring of workouts. It's not unusual that for some players, we will do what's now called workload management and maybe give that player a day off uh, of, or a day of recovery uh, instead of engaging in a team workout. So when we look at loads. They are categorically divided into external loads and internal loads. And very simply, an external load is really what we're throwing at the athlete what physical load will the player have incurred? And not only over a single session, but cumulatively over time. And that leads then to us establishing something that we'll talk about in a second called the acute versus chronic workload risk. Uh, So this is really, again, just the measurements, the way of monitoring that is out there for determining what it is externally that's been applied to the Athlete internal loads, then, or how have they responded to those external stressors or external loads from a physiologic nature, from a biologic nature, which includes the physiology, physiologic changes, but also consider internal workload has to consider the psychological effect on the athlete as well so an uh, external load again is defined as the work completed by the athlete and it's measured independently from those ind- those internal characteristics and and using an example that is maybe a little esoteric you know looking at it from the perspective of a road cyclist but you know there's ways to get an athlete on a bike and do specific power output measurements and, and being able to calculate that down to a a particular wattage. Um, So again, that it's looking at ways of quantifying that external load for somebody in the gym who's doing bench press. It might be simply that they're ripping out um, 200 pounds, 10 reps, and then that equates to a number and we can monitor that number over time. Internal workload, again, physiologic and, and psychological stresses imposed by the effort that are measured now with physiologic markers, such as heart rate, RPE, the the rating of perceived exertion, a scale of one to 10. And then things that we can look at serologically, such as uh, lactic acid in the blood. Uh, we can look at cortisol, testosterone, and inflammatory biomarkers, either through serum or through even salivary mechanisms. So categorizing some of these external load monitors uh, there's there's time motion analysis and I mentioned that in every NBA arena there's digital vi- uh, video cameras high-speed cameras recording every single movement made by the athlete going north south east or west um, on the 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 limitation within a closed arena is that you you can't get all of the information that can be extracted from GPS tracking uh, like you could on a out, in an outdoor setting such as the soccer pitch. But uh, nonetheless, there's valuable data we could we we would easily be able to tell you that you know our point guard ran 3.8 miles and uh, our our big man ran 2.1, and you can readily understand that there's a big difference between that. The amount of minutes played, a player gets in the foul trouble, et cetera, all of that is is data that can be extracted and then extrapolated across uh, very different uh, leagues, et cetera. In the NBA in particular, they, they would not allow for accelerometers, which are devices that are attached typically to a jersey about smaller than the size of, a, of an iPhone. And uh, they're not allowed, but, but yet our developmental league or our Gatorade league would allow us to do that. So we can use the data extracted from the point guard playing a similar number of minutes to our NBA guard and, and utilize that information interchangeably. Another form of external load monitoring is the force plates which is more measure of neuromuscular function. So it can be utilized to monitor strength over time, or it's particularly helpful in looking at uh, an athlete, maybe he's complaining of patellar tendonitis and you do force plate evaluations and you could see an asymmetry. And so it allows you now a goal of uh, directing the rehab and, and ultimately being able to visualize correction of the problem. So sports view is that player tracking system that I tell you in basketball arenas. It creates statistics that measure distance and average speed of all the movements by a player on the court. And so that's one uh, quantifiable objective way of measuring, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, external loads. The catapult system, and that's, this is an accelerometer. And I look at how small it is and how easy it can be. Attached to a player's jersey or singlet, so it's a wearable system and it monitors elapsed exercise over time, distance covered, the pace, so periods of, of high-speed acceleration and, and lower levels of acceleration, and can measure now the up-down movement of a player. Um, again, it's it's not as uh, applicable when you are. Um, it, in, in all settings, for example, the NBA may use it in a practice setting, but not in a in a game like setting. And and these these numbers are now obsolete because I, I did this talk I think originally in like 2017. So forget about those numbers. You could probably um, put a multiple of 10 uh, across all those because everybody's using utilizing these systems now. Now I don't mean for anybody to try and pick this apart, but um, you know, I want to show you that these are the kind of things that end up in my, uh, email box every single day during the season. And, um, what I'm not showing you on the far left of the screen would be the players numbers. Um, but we would be going down the row here and either alphabetically or by their number, you can see the number of being, of games played in the last game, uh, which was, um, looks like, uh, In 2016, February 3rd, we played the New Orleans Pelicans, and we won that game 110-97, to and it's broken down thereafter, and it looks at how many players at the very top left of the screen, you'll see that player played 33 minutes, and the guy at the very bottom played um, 26 minutes, and somebody came in in some garbage time and got just a few few seconds in, um, and... Nonetheless, so we then accumulate a season average. We then look over the minutes played, and we're in that, in that category to the left. We'd look at uh, the minutes played over the last five games. We compare the last five games over the previous 15 games. And then our sports scientists will use the metrics derived from the sports view cameras to develop what acceleration loads there were. And again, comparing those, um, from last game to season average, the last five games, last 15 games, and, uh, and then looking at the total acceleration load. Um, again, just data, data, data that's extrapolated from one level to the next. And, uh, and thank God that there are sports scientists uh, that are calculating all this or I wouldn't have a real practice probably. Um, it's broken down to the nth degree. So now we look at those, uh, those distance coverage and we know distance times speed you know, is, is looking at acceleration and, and distance over time rather is, is speed. And so you can now take down and break down the time that an athlete spent at uh, running greater than 7.5 miles per hour as you see in the far left category. In the middle category, we see that there's time spent at very high intensity speed, uh, which is greater than 11.2, and then looking at that acceleration as it translates to the athlete's load. So it's data, it's data, it's data. A lot of it, you know, we feel like you throw it against the wall and you see what sticks and what's really applicable. These are what our force plates look like in our gym, and, and there's a variety of jumps that will have the athlete jump from a platform and land on both legs at the same time, um, land alternately from one leg to the other leg, uh, counter jumps, et cetera. And um, so we want to we see the, the force perhaps upon which the athlete lands, and then we want to see maybe the force generated as they're standing on the platform and bounding onto uh, a workbench, et cetera. Okay, so flipping now, uh, having talked about a couple of means of assessing external load, we look at the internal load. What effect did that external load have have on our athlete? So one way is by doing the RPE scale, the rating of perceived exertion. We can simultaneously, during the time that an athlete is working out, we can have them wear a heart rate monitor. These, these can't be performed uh, or utilized during game activities in the NBA and in many other um, professional level sports, but they are capable of being applied during practice sessions. Um, and, and sometimes in the minor league level, we're able to utilize them as guinea pigs, so to speak, to extract this data, the HRR heart rate recovery. We're able, as I mentioned to via saliva, to assess things by biochemically and hormonally and immunologically by extracting saliva or blood. We monitor, of course, a player's weight. There's some testing such as the adductor squeeze, um, which has been a predeterminant of fatigue and weakness involving the adductor muscles, uh, so important to, to the exercising athlete. Dorsiflexion lunge is a way of looking at uh, ankle dorsiflexion and determining whether there is a return from from what should be considered uh, normal. Um, And and you may see deficits in this after an athlete becomes fatigued because of inflexibility of the calf. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Isometric muscle testing will show you what's called a norboard. Functional testing can be done, reaction times, jump height, speed, Um, Acetography is actually measuring uh, sleep patterns and uh, the wearables that athletes can put on and you can look at their sleep patterns and how many awakenings they had during the course of the night, etc. The RPE scale is a 1 to 10 scale self-determined assessment of exercise intensity where total load um, becomes based on the uh, rating of perceived exertion, 1 to 10 times the duration in minutes the RPE can correlate well with heart rate during uh, steady-state exercise so again wearing the heart rate monitor while you're running an athlete through oftentimes this is best done um, for example on a cycle ergometer or on a treadmill and so you can just have the athlete run to the point of near exhaustion and along the way they're they're telling you okay I feel fine it's a four or um I feel an eight and you know, they're probably getting near the point of exhaustion. And at the same time, while you're measuring heart rate, you can be drawing blood. And so then you can correlate the lactic acid buildup with that rating of perceived exertion and that athlete's training heart rate. So now you get an athlete who's wearing a heart rate monitor and they're out on the court and you can try to correlate then with what you've done in the lab with what their level of fitness for continued work is or whether it's time to quickly back them off because they're reaching a level of fatigue. And that level of fatigue, of course, we would correlate with increased injury risk. Cardio recovery, very important for For our aerobic sports, of course, um, and there's a linear relationship between your heart rate and the rate at which you consume oxygen. And so the the higher the ability to consume oxygen, the the greater the the fitness level of the athlete. So good correlate there for oxygen consumption and, and rating the level of aerobic fitness Heart rate recovery is the rate at which a heart rate declines after exercise is terminated. So, a very fit athlete who's very autonomically tuned and has a high fitness level will quickly recur- return to their baseline uh, heart rate. And those in which you maintain an elevated heart rate for a sustained period of time, uh, conversely indicates that their fitness level is not as optimal. We look at markers of fatigue versus fitness again via saliva. The yo-yo intermittent recovery test is is a cadence test that was very popular uh, among European sports and soccer players, but it is a a method of doing field testing forms of aerobic fitness. So not necessarily having to put everybody on a treadmill and hooked up to um, an oxygen measuring uh, device. So this is that yo-yo test, short intensive 40-meter um, uh, runs with brief recovery periods, 10 seconds typically, in between ideal for sports with intermittent bouts of intensity such as soccer and basketball. So soccer, we know that uh, your, your midfielders are going to be the players that are gonna run essentially most of the game. Defenders may not always run when there's no activity on their end of the pitch. And same with a, a goalie, for example. With basketball players, we know that there's uh, time on the court. Then you return to the bench. There's free throws. There's timeouts. And so uh, a yo-yo recovery test may be uh, a little more valid than somebody who's going to get on a treadmill and run to the point of exa- exhaustion because that's just not the way those, those athletes typically engage in their sport. But it is valid assessment of, of cardiovascular fitness and heart and as is heart rate recovery. our our biomarkers, testosterone and cortisol correlate, of course, with levels of of wellness and uh, levels of fatigue. So the higher the testosterone level, there's a typical correlate there with a level of wellness and readiness. Uh, Let me use that term, readiness for exercise, whereas uh, cortisol, which is produced by the adrenal glands above the kidneys, Um, is a measure of stress to the body. So the higher the cortisol level we see, um, there's a correlation there between an anabolic state where the testosterone level would be high and a catabolic state where your cortisol levels would be high. There's enzymes that we can monitor, such as creatinine kinase, that are evidence of muscle breakdown. Myoglobin can be extracted from serum or can be extracted even from urine as an indicator of muscle breakdown. So we know that in an athlete, for example, with rhabdomyolysis, that uh, the, the CK and the myoglobin just go off the charts because of the intense muscle breakdown. And of course, we, do, we hope not to, to incur that if we're imposing a workload upon an athlete for which they are able to endure. But we do see a variety of factors, uh, typically in the summer months, uh, when we have the cofactors of high heat and humidity, that's something we run into in our, uh, in our summer months as we engage in high school and collegiate football down here in Texas. And then there are these markers of inflammation such as interleukin, alpha amylase, and, and these all can be extracted from saliva, um, MMP, which is uh, matrix metalloproteinases, and tissue inhibitors, of matrix metalloproteinases are enzymes that are indicative of cartilaginous destruction. So good things to monitor for monitoring the effects of workload on a player's joints. Again, more graphs and these are the, this is our biomarker graft and just the correlation of how you can look at salivary osmolality and, um, and an increase in that demonstrates an athlete that may be in a dehydrated state. <clears throat> I mentioned interleukin-1 and its role with inflammation. This is this is very, very cogent information in the management of osteoarthritis, for example. Um, alpha amylase and, and its decline is indicative of a low state of the immune system. Troponin myoglobin in, in indicators of muscular damage. Um, So again, somewhat of a a repeat of what I just uh, talked about in the previous slide. So going again to looking at some of the uh, internal monitoring, the effects of the workload internally, physiologically, biomechanically on the athlete, high level of evidence that reduced hip adductor strength is related to injury. Uh, This is done with a sphingomanometer, a blood pressure cuff. So bilateral isometric contractions into a pre-inflated cuff and uh, looking at those compared to a baseline. Predisposition to uh, groin injury and well studied in, in uh, European soccer players. Uh, just kind of a, an overview of what, what our weight room looks like. Uh, a lot of free weights, uh, a lot of cycle ergometers. Uh, perhaps in that uh, right hand corner of the screen Trying to put my arrowhead there, there is uh, an alter G. um, So you're probably all familiar with that. That's a a treadmill in which you're able to pneumatically reduce workloads so uh, that you can reduce essentially the, the force of impact by reducing a player's body weight by unloading them pneumatically. How about recovery methods? I mentioned that recovery has become a very, very hot topic. In the area of management of workloads and and reducing injury risk, so we think that if an athlete has been imposed to a big workload and and or we start to get some markers that their perhaps their cortisol level is increased, their adductor squeeze demonstrates um, that it's it's also decreased in comparison, and then we go and we look at their. Metrics, And we see that this athlete has had an increased workload, played greater minutes, uh, perhaps because of injury to the person that was starting in front of them that got injured or that took, a, took was given a, a day of recovery, et cetera. All, all different kind of uh, variables there. But we may have that athlete come back into the gym and engage in a, a light cardio workout. We like to have them have their tissues worked on manually. Uh, cryotherapy of course has, has become very, very popular as a recovery method, uh, pulse compression, aquatic therapy, all these things that I know your athletic trainers, uh, that are listening in have applied to their athletes. So we have, you know, whole body cryo chambers where you get exposure to cold or dry air anywhere between minus a hundred degrees Celsius, minus 140 degrees Celsius for, uh, anywhere between, um, typically 90 seconds to maybe up to two minutes, uh, decreases tissue temperature comparable to traditional forms of therapy, but over a larger surface area. So it's generally then going to be more easily tolerated than cold water immersion. Uh, well, while, while athletes can typically tolerate things like ice baths or maybe getting all the way up to their waist in a cold water tub, uh, it's it's a little bit more difficult to tolerate for the extended period of time, um, as uh, you know, getting up into their shoulder level or neck level. Uh, we do know that cryotherapy, whether it's by cold water immersion or whole body cryotherapy, does have a benefit effect on the autonomic function and the ability to reduce edema and in, uh, in either either affect positively or negatively a vasoconstrictive or vasodilatory um, situation. So here's a cryo unit that the Spurs have on hand and that's um, the big budget that professional uh, teams can endure, that's about a $50,000 unit. And uh, try to make sure that our athletes are utilizing this as a form of active recovery. We talked about this sequential gradient compression garments such as the Norma that employ a, a pulsing dynamic compression to mobilize fluids and metabolites from the extremities back up to the heart. And these are applied post in high intensity workouts, very, very uh, commonly seen during an athlete who's uh, played this game and jumping on the plane that night. So it's convenient for air travel or they can have them applied right to post-game or right in, in, in the uh, training room or recovery areas. And here's an example of what they look like. Aquatic therapy, of course, here. This is this is a SwimX, so the underwater uh, treadmill device. That's uh, You can see the white platform below. And so athletes can uh, participate in aqua jogging or they can swim against a current applied in the SwimX uh, here in the Spurs Aquatic Area. There is the Alter G that I spoke of earlier, forgot that I had a close-up of that. Various forms of aerobic exercise, players don't have to run, they can use a Versa Climber, they can get on a stationary bike, they can uh, get on a elliptical. The Nord Board, again, used uh, extensively in, in Europe, uh, looking at soccer players and our and, uh, age-old nemesis the hamstring strains. Uh, So these are many sensors that assess hamstring strength eccentrically and shown to be an effective method of training as well. So you uh, apply a wireless isokinetic uh, dynamometer and you're able to determine athletes' uh, baselines and uh, measure their ongoing health of the hamstrings over the course of the season. So obviously very germane to acceleration, deceleration sports. So there's this myriad of tests that are out there and and unfortunately there's no single test that's gonna give us all the answers. So we have to choose tests that are relevant to the sport and choosing a method of doing external and internal load monitoring is gonna be completely different for cross country runner um, and, and an American football player, or uh, a, a football soccer player. So uh, you must find those that are more relevant to your sport. They have to be practical to implement. You can get the most sophisticated machinery that should give you spit out the best data for you and accumulate to you. But if it's impractical to implement, then it's it's uh, not money well spent. Choose tests in which they are most reliable, and as you study. Things that come onto the market, look for reliability. Do not look for anecdotal reports that, uh, well, this is used by this athlete or that athlete. You know, look for the data. Um, find the data. Ask for papers. and Make sure that this uh, this device that you're looking at has been reliably tested in the in the market. That there are numbers to validate its its use and its applicability. Uh, so. And then you want to choose tests that allow you to look at that and then produce actionable <clears throat> actionable data. So what is it I can now take to my strength coach? What What is it that I can now take to my coach and uh, explain to them that this is a reason why this athlete maybe needs to undergo a reduced workload or an increased workload because they just haven't been getting um, active minutes? We run into that a lot with The players that just fill out the end of our bench and don't see a lot of game minutes. So in order to keep them up to speed, we often have to arrange for pickup games for them with our video staff and and other members so that we can keep them up to a level and make sure that they don't decline as a result of deconditioning and inactivity, equally important. So the key points to make all this effective is to make sure that your athletes understand why they're being monitored. Um, when we first brought this into our team, um, it, it was not necessarily well received by those players that didn't have any exposure to it. The, interestingly, the international players were used to it and were, were essentially demanding it. And, you know, I can remember the good old days, and and um, it, it, things were a lot easier to manage. And for a lot of years, Spurs did very well. We were up at the top of the league, and the number of games missed, meaning that's the fewest games missed. So, and I can remember that we were doing this with all without all of this sports science. And so, um, we we've had some years uh, in the last couple of years where our injury rate has gone up, and it's it's not entirely understandable (laughs) comprehensible and um and but i can tell you this is this is this is staying around so i think it's it's necessary for all of us to come up to speed and be able to speak the language and have some at least general understanding make sure your athletes understand why they're being tested so that ultimately it's about uh, maintaining their careers maintaining the livelihood of their careers and not pushing them toward a, a category of injury risk. Very simply, we want, we'd like our players to stay in the green, in the green zone, right? And so if you can keep players out of the yellow zone in which you have some concern and definitely out of the red zone, uh, then we believe that we can keep them in a level where we're reducing their injury risk your coaches have to understand i mean there's no sense getting all this unless there is complete buy in by the medical staff coaching staff and athletic uh, the athletes themselves and you know you can't dabble in it you just can't decide you want to do it this week and not do it the following week it it calls for consistency and and again this is not really my job as the team physician especially somebody who's in private practice it's really interesting in europe and and in South Africa and Australia, the team physicians are typically employed uh, by the organizations. And that's not typically the case here in the United States, where most doctors are out in private practice or university practices and then take care of those teams as well. Use the, use the test and the data that will allow you to make clinical decisions about player health. That's the probably the most important thing of all. So why really, you know, why do we want to maximize player and team performance, and, and what is it really that causes us to look at the sports science and look at external and internal loads so seriously and try to use those ratios to determine injury risk? Um, it, it's it's I think all about this, right? It's all about uh, it's all about the competition. It's all about uh, teams seeking. The competitive edge, um, finding when you can reduce injury, keep players available, optimize their fitness levels, monitor and reduce their fatigue levels. Uh, we we all know that injuries are part of the game, and and that uh, that luck is a really big part of it. I think it's also if you look back and you go, well, you know, did Michael Jordan have all this available to him? Did Magic Johnson have all this available to him? And and they were superstars in their own right. Um, it, it's a it's a tough question to answer because we know that there's a there's a certain it factor in all elite athletes that they they, they have this ability. Um, you know, there's there's genetic factors, there's psychological factors of how athletes will push themselves and the drive that they maintain. So um, really, I think, you know, we're at the end of, of, of the discussion on this topic. And um, it's been great to deliver this information to you. As I mentioned, this has really been an area of professional growth. Probably if you'd have asked me when we started exposing ourselves to this uh, six or seven years ago, if I, if I really enjoyed doing this, Um, No, not really at the time. But um, again, it it has created a level of understanding for me. And uh, it it now is the metrics that that we look at. And we do sit around in our team meetings, which are uh, typically led by our director of of player personnel and player health. And uh, there are some very, very uh, educated individuals in the room trying to make decisions about Everything from, is this, is this a player we should draft? Uh, is, is this a player that we um, allow to progressively return to play or not? I mean, very, very big big, and interesting and, and sometimes multi-million dollar decisions are being made utilizing these metrics. Um, so I don't know if the, the format at this point, um, Sean and Jeremy, is, is to take any questions. If If that is something we can do, then great. And um, I'm happy to stick around for a few more minutes.
1: One, one of the main things I wanted to um, say, Dr. Science, was is obviously this doesn't it isn't it. it one of the reasons I, I like the topic, but wanted to kind of pick your brain about it was that. Sorry, my, my notes just went away on me here um, was that I want I want to go through this obviously isn't the world of the high school athletic trainer. this, I mean, you know, sometimes isn't even even near the world of the collegiate athletic trainer, but one of the great things about what all you're doing in the NBA and you're doing in, and, and, and they're doing in, uh, especially like you said in um, international soccer and, and different places like that is they're doing a lot of this testing. So we can actually pull numbers. We can get a lot of information. We can get a lot of this stuff, to which we can then apply to our high school athletes. Now, that being said, it can also be a burden on us as the high school athletic trainer or the middle school athletic trainer. So because you get the the coach that says, oh, we're going to do this because this is what the Spurs are doing or or, we're going to do this because this is what SAFC is doing or the Dynamo or whomever. Um, Mm -hmm. But how do we apply what we're finding what what we're utilizing in this recovery model slash in this sport science model in our high school and and um, maybe the smaller collegiate athletes and uh, and such
2: well, that's that's really an excellent question Sean. and and uh, you know and and forgive me to some degree about about really not trying to extrapolate this to all different levels of competition because you're right this, some of this stuff is actually uh, not going to be readily available unless you're um, at the collegiate level and, and uh, beyond. So, you know, again, it, it, we talked about really what's, what's the concept of team and, and in particular the sports medicine team. And, and the athletic trainers really are always really the bridge between the athlete and the coaching staff. And the more that an athletic trainer can educate themselves and credential themselves to bring relevant information to the coaching staff. You know, I know here in San Antonio, we we really try to endorse our athletic trainers to our coaches a hundred percent, you know, especially based on those athletic trainers that have taken a real special interest, be it in rehab or in sports science. And so, it takes that really collegiality. It takes that mutual respect um, where you bring information to them that I believe at the at the high school level and the middle school level should be focused more on really a, a periodization of training and, and knowing that athletes who come in from the summer months, this is going to be really something we've never dealt with before. Athletes are likely to come in um, more out of shape than we've ever seen them before because of the pandemic, and so it's going to be very, very important for you to get the ears uh, and of your coaches so that athletes are brought in a progressive fashion. Maybe you use something simple for aerobic fitness, like the yo-yo test. It's very easy, easy to to administer. Um, You know, there's there's a YouTube video that I looked at before before this talk just to bring myself back up to familiarity with it because it's not being used a lot in the States. Um, But but it's about a gradual progression of workload and then looking at whatever uh, markers you can for for fatigue, you know, talking to your athletes individually, especially especially those that, you know, are receiving a big workload because of their their skill level and importance to the team, etc. And letting coaches know that recovery is a very, very vital part. And I probably didn't answer your question nearly as fully uh, as you might have liked, but I think it's really developing that rapport, trust, so that the coaches allow you to bring them relevant data.
0: I think that is something that you definitely went through. You said make sure the players understand why you're doing it. The coaches understand why you're doing it. Make sure you know it's easy, it's repeatable, reliable. And that was the biggest question that I had is, what does this look like? Because I just looked up the Alter G and it's like thirty-five to $75,000. Well, that's like seven, eight years worth of budget, you know, just for, for one device at the high school, at my high school. And, that, and I, have, I think I have a decent budget. And so... Um, there are devices like the the Compex, the Mark Pro, the Firefly. Are you familiar with those, Doctor Signs?
2: No, I'm not. I'm not, Jeremy.
0: So basically, it's like uh, electrical stimulation. So not, it's NMES or neuromuscular electric, electrical stimulation. So using those to to create a recovery effect because those are easy they're cost effective and they're portable. Um, and so devices like those. I could see playing into the high school setting more for recovery, but do you, do you know if y'all use those at all in the, uh, with the spurs?
2: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now when you put the, the type of technology, the NEMS, uh, you know, certainly something I'm familiar with. And, um, so absolutely that's a method of mobilizing tissues and mobilizing metabolites within tissues and fluids. So, um, a good method of recovery, but you know, let's not forget simple things like uh, like water immersion, you know, and cold water immersions in cold tubs. And let's not forget about simple things like sleep. Um, and so, golly, you know, we look at injuries, and we you know the concussion model has made us think a lot about um, you know what are the other variables that contribute to a concussion. Extrapolate that to musculoskeletal injuries. You know, did the athletes sleep well enough? Have they been concurrently studying and cramming for exams? You know, during this time frame, uh, do they have a home situation that's causing them psychological stressors? Um, but 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 going back to the the methods of recovery, you know, you do have typically stationary bikes in your in your rooms in your uh, training rooms. Um, maybe you have access to aquatics. Um, maybe there's a pool that the athletes can use. Maybe you can do group sessions in a pool. You know, talk to your coaches about things like that as well as a method of recovery. So, you know, days after games and guys really beat themselves up on a Friday night or Saturday night, you know, that, that, those, that next day is very important recovery day.
1: One of the big things you talked about, too, was and and I kind of mentioned this was you bring those numbers back from what you guys are doing the research in and and you can apply that because you can utilize those 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 RPE scales or or questionnaires. One of the one of the easiest things you can do is a questionnaire um, with your coaching staff, especially like let's talk about football during two days. um, What was your recovery like? What what did you eat? I mean, you can make it as in-depth as you want to, or you can make it as, as, as simple as you want. What, what was your diet like last night when you left here at the training facility, that being a high school athlete or that being a college athlete? Um, what was, how many hours of sleep was that? It's not to get, and, and knowing as the sports medicine staff, that's where you're getting, getting the coaches on your side and, and them understanding that this isn't a way to get the athlete in trouble, but it's a way to say, Hey, we're going to know that we're going to take, take it back on you a little bit or Hey, what, why is there an issue that you're not able to sleep or you're not able to do that? Or you're not able to get as much sleep. Um, and then especially now with everybody running around with an iWatch, you can, you, you might not be able to purchase catapult, but what you can do is you can have them if they have an watch on in there. Um, and you can actually watch the amount of, or, or. I'm um, losing my train of thought on what the other ones were. The ones that just tracked your, the distance that you walk or your fi- Fitbits and so forth. The yes, fit, the Fitbits and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. if you've got the wide receiver that, you know, man, they're drained every day because they're, I mean, they're taking most of your reps or they're taking uh, all the, the time on the practice field. That's something that you can put on and say, Hey coach, let's try to keep under this today um let's let's utilize the research that in the professional community that we're able to use um or in the collegiate in facilities because obviously when in my time in the collegiate world we we utilized a lot of that stuff and adapt it to which you can use in in the high school setting or in that smaller world because you can pull those numbers or you can pull that information or you can pull those ideas and and use those fatigue numbers that you've talked about of when their RPE gets to a certain point. That's when their injury risk goes to because you guys have already done the research for that.
2: Yeah, those are those are really excellent points, Sean. And uh, whether it's the use of the wearables, the actigraphy and the the ratings of perceived exertions, uh, really just doing wellness questionnaires periodically, you know, maybe weekly is, is really a, a very, very good indicator of where that athlete's at and those that really maybe need a little closer monitoring.
0: So recently we did a podcast with Carrie Wood about monitoring mental health and we, it was basically just a I think a five question Google doc or Google form that she sends out via text message. And so you mentioned Uh, something about the psychological well-being of the athletes and then filling out those forms every day. Is that something they do on paper? Is that something they do electronically? And and was that accurate or did I, did I mishear that? Was it, is it every day?
2: Well, when, when we have exposure to our athletes on a near daily basis during the course of a season, then it is really on a daily basis. And of course, again, when, when no uh, expenses are spared, but we're, but we're in the age of obviously every kind of app being able to be placed on our phone. So uh, a wellness app has been created for our organization as part of the things that allow us to monitor our athletes. So, but if you don't have that, that, there's certainly something that can be um, posted in a training room uh, wall. And you can say, you know, simply on a scale of 10, what's your general feeling of wellness today? It can be a, something as simple as that. Our athletes can come in and, and uh, fill out a, a four or five questionnaire response questionnaire uh, that is a psychological or wellness update. And that can be done on an iPad. Um, so any, any number of means to do it either by, by a paper method um, or just the, you know, the regular correspondence when an athlete comes into the training room and they're, and they're getting up there to have their ankle tape, you know, how are you feeling today? If you were going to tell me, how'd you sleep last night? What would you say your overall level is? Do you feel happy today? Do you feel kind of grumpy or down? You know, those are all very tangible things. But um, again, taking that information and then passing it on, sharing it with the, with the coaching members of the team and coaching staff.
1: I will say that there are there are quite a bit of apps that are or let's just say organizations that are putting out a lot of those questionnaire things that be uh, might actually be a part of what Catapult puts out or what what these different um, and there are a, several of those that are budget budget friendly with regard to especially if a a, a, a sports medicine staff wants to implement something like that it's it's not extremely expensive. I know at the time when I was at Rice, we were looking at a lot of different ones. And, um, I mean, depending upon the athlete number, it really realistically wasn't expensive. And I'm certain that they've gone down from there, but I've also, as, as you kind of mentioned, Dr. Science is organizations can put them together yourselves. So, and with, with student athletic trainers that are very good with apps and computers, um, I know for, a uh i'll i'll say travis chipman with um he's one of our program managers for justin sports medicine he's also here in san antonio um he is a uh he's put together a quick app that we do as a, as we can utilize now as a check off on our dot stuff for driving for justin sports medicine and you make sure that everything is done so it's basically our safety check um and he built the app. Now, depending upon the number of people, yeah, you may have to pay for it. But what some of those apps can actually do is you can create some that actually text and will actually send a message from a, a whatever number, like a Google number. Um, and by creating that, it sends it, and then you will get the responses back in a in a form um, in like a Excel type document. And you can also utilize it in a shared with each individual athlete, um, in like a Google docs or something like that, where their requirement is is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they need to get on and they need to fill out their numbers. Um, and if their numbers fall above an eight, it gives, it sends you a notification and, and or it gives you like a red spot so that you don't have to go through and start looking at everything and, Oh, everything's, everything's clear and it's very quick. So, Obviously a little more time consuming, but there's a lot of different ways that you can utilize stuff like that as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, there's, you know, and, and the, uh, the middle school and high school kids can uh, just about get a plane in the air through their phone. So uh, you're right about the applicability there.
0: You also mentioned that post compression and specifically the Normatec device. And is there Is there a reason or is that just one example? Because obviously there's like recovery pump or rapid (coughs) reboot or the other, some of the other ones. Um, And so can you talk just a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I think um, the idea obviously of mobilization of fluids is, is the ultimate objective of whether it's a Norma tech or XYZ brand, but You know, when, when you talk about just sequential pulsing, it typically then, you know, runs from South to North. If you're doing the lower extremities, um, there's, there's different applications for doing the same thing in a throwing athlete, you know, a pitcher that you want to have. And, and we, we know these as former names like the Job's pump and things like that, that have always just been a way of mobilizing fluid and trying to restore really homeostasis back to the, uh, the, the vascular system and reducing edema, reducing swelling and, and mobilizing what we consider to be deleterious metabolites such as lactic acid, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, it, it, I think there's other devices that are out there. Um, things become in vogue, you know, and certainly by the design that you can see that the Norma Tech has, you can get, you know, you can get a seven footer in those things and, and, uh, as they're flying from LA to Boston they can they can be engaging in some form of active recovery
0: we also talked about the secondary setting so one of the questions is with these athletes that are just that are still growing they're not skeletally, skeletally mature it, can they recover too much or too fast so is there is there a, a point where we need to say you can only do one of the recovery devices, or you can only do it for so long because your body still has to continue to grow.
2: Um, well, I think I think that you do always have to individualize treatment. But you know, heretofore, the 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 most worrisome thing on um, athletes that are skeletally immature that are still going through growth spurts really has been more a concern about you know, biomechanical loads, and then the biomechanicals are the, the association of that biomechanical load to the development, perhaps of an overuse injury, you know, an apophysitis or a tendonitis or what have you. Um, so, um, I, I think though that there's, there's not any data that I'm aware of that any of the recovery methods employed would have a deleterious effect. Again, I, I think sometimes, you know, um, just keeping it simple is, is oftentimes all that we need to do. And and again, looking at sleep as a good recovery method, icing as a recovery method, massage as a recovery method, light aerobic exercise, stationary bike, elliptical, as opposed to pounding, um, you know, when, when somebody's just actively running or sprinting. So, you know, keep it simple as best you can. I, I would not, uh, I, I'd, I'd worry more about not providing a mechanism of recovery to the skeletally immature athlete, as opposed to providing them a method of recovery and worrying about the side
0: effects of that recovery method. That's fair enough. All right. So Dr. Stein, as we wrap it up here, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, find out more, um, obviously you said you cannot share the PowerPoint in and of itself, but it could be viewed here through the, the video. Um, how can somebody reach out and get a hold of you?
2: Well, um, if you, if you have a mechanism of getting a hold of of Sean ready, then you have a mechanism of getting a hold of me. I, uh, I have him on speed dial. I hope he has me on speed dial. But uh, my email address is uh, is if you, if you're ready for it is s a jock doc. So s a j o c k d o c at aol dot <laughs>
0: All right, and then Sean is always Sean Ready underscore atc on uh, Twitter. So that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of him there. Uh, he's also on Facebook. You can find him again. He says Sean Reedy, but it is spelled Ready, and he always says like I was born Ready, right? So it's Sean Ready underscore atc on Twitter. And He's also on Instagram, so you you can find Sean Ready if you need to. I am Jeremy Jackson again. This course. Once it is available on the podcast version, it is eligible for CEUs at sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash sports science, and then it'll have a link, or you can go to the CEU part of the website as well. So, Sean, any final closing thoughts?
1: No, just one thing I wanted to touch on was that that av Dr. Squeeze test, and I think that that was a fantastic um I've actually read the research articles that they've, they've published on that. And I would recommend for everybody to take a look at that because that's actually something that you can get a lot out of as well in that high school setting and, and, and can find a lot of good stuff from, but Nope, all, all good for me.
2: Well, guys, I uh, enjoyed, enjoyed the opportunity to speak with all of you uh, ladies and gentlemen. And um, our, our group here in San Antonio is, is really comprised of a, a good group of people that were involved in in the education of, of, of young doctors and um, and future doctors and uh, athletic trainers in the area. We have a very, very collegial relationship with, with athletic trainers here in, in San Antonio and South Texas and really across the nation. And so just please consider us a resource at any time. You can reach out to me. If I don't know an answer, I'll do my best to get you in contact with either one of my partners who knows the answer, or, or maybe uh, some colleagues across the country. So enjoy the opportunity to be with all of you today.
0: All right. Thank you very much. So for Dr. Paul Sines, Jeremy Jackson, Sean Reedy, and the sports medicine broadcast, that is a wrap. Thanks.